This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Are we getting the leaders we deserve? It's a question Matt Bai raised recently. He's national political columnist for Yahoo News. Quoting from his piece, if you're mystified by the Twitter war of the candidates' wives, if you can't understand why Wolf Blitzer interviews a former contestant on The Apprentice as if she were a political authority, then I've got a video you really need to watch. And the video he refers to is from 1987. It's of a speech from then U.S. Senator and presidential candidate Gary Hart of Colorado. Hart is bowing out of the race after allegations he had an extramarital affair. Matt By wrote a book about this period called All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. He says it's about the collision of entertainment and political journalism. And given it's a presidential election year, we thought we'd listen back to my 2014 conversation with By. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. We invited Senator Hart to join us, and he declined. We're obviously going to talk a lot about him and about one of the most difficult chapters in his life and about how the media covered it. Uh, and because this is essentially a hometown story for Coloradans, it feels right to ask about the role that Gary Hart played as you wrote this book. Senator Hart, uh, you know, has said that he feels the book should stand on its own and should be my story and not his. And so he's chosen at this point and not to really talk about it. But he's been, you know, incredibly gracious and generous with his time since we started talking about this years ago. You know, the, the, the history of this is that I wrote about him in 2002 uh, when he was talking about running for president again, and he didn't much like the piece I wrote. And the truth is, over time, I didn't much like the piece I wrote, although I think it was true and, and, and good, just not complete. Uh, and it haunted me for years. It became kind of an obsession of mine. And I finally went back to him and said, I want to do a book. And he thought I was insane. Uh, everyone thought I was insane, actually, or a lot of people. Uh, but it, it takes tremendous courage, I think, to go back and relive something that painful late in your life when you hope to have outlasted it. And part of that is an admission that you haven't outlasted it, which is a hard thing to admit. So, you know, uh, I, I would say that while I don't think he likes every word of the book, and I would let him talk about it when he wants to. You know, I, I, I would say that I really admire uh, and, and appreciate the cooperation and the courage. And actually, John Hart is here tonight somewhere. John, where'd you go? Senator Hart's son. And, and, you know, I point that out just because really the whole family's been terrific to subject themselves to this and, and all the publicity that's come from it. So I'm very appreciative that he's here and, and that, you know, we continue to, to talk about it. You're right. This was Hart's enduring legacy, the inevitable first line in his front page obituary. No matter what else he did thereafter, even if he cured cancer or found the unified string theory or went completely bonkers and tried to hijack an airplane mid-flight. Did you have misgivings about reopening the wound? Sure. I mean, I, there were many times in, in the writing of the book where I put myself in Senator Hart's shoes uh, as I put myself in the reporter's shoes and everybody else I was writing about and said, you know, is this, is this necessary? Is it fair? Is it, does it do him justice? I think Senator Hart deserves a reappraisal. I think he was a visionary politician. I think he was caught in a moment that's little understood. And I think that he uh, became a, a punchline in that moment, you know, an, an, a late night punchline in a way that I think young people today can't appreciate how total that branding, that labeling was uh, at that time in America. And 
I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't believe that we as a country had something to learn from taking a different look at that episode. So you call this a moment, a chapter in history that is little understood or misunderstood. And let's, let's jump in and try to understand it. Uh, in the spring of 1987, this dashing Democratic senator from Colorado appeared to be on a solid trajectory to the White House. He was outpolling other Democrats in the field, and he was leading the Republican, George H.W. Bush. But on May 8th, after a week or so of being hounded by the press about an alleged affair with a model named Donna Rice, he bows out of the race. Uh, of course, an infamous photo emerges of her sitting on his lap, uh, and it's revealed that they met aboard a boat named Monkey Business, which added to the late-night punchlines. They both denied it was sexual, but it still caused him to withdraw from the race. And let's hear from some of his speech. He'll mention his wife, Lee, and let's just say that Senator Hart did not strike an apologetic note at that time. Now, clearly, Lee and I have never had a tougher week, but I'm not a beaten man. I'm an angry and defiant man. I've said that I bend, but I don't break. And believe me, I'm not broken. So instead of, um, instead of getting this over fast, I'm going to just kind of talk a while about this week and the times that we're in. And he goes on to say, We're all going to have to seriously question the system for selecting our national leaders that reduces the press of this nation to hunters and presidential candidates to being hunted, that has reporters in bushes, false and inaccurate stories printed, photographers peeking in our windows, swarms of helicopters hovering over our roof, and my very strong wife close to tears because she can't even get in her own house at night without being harassed. And then after all that, ponderous pundits wonder in mock seriousness why some of the best people in this country choose not to run for high office. You write, at that moment, Hart was in a vortex, one he didn't create. Quote, he was rather the first to wander into its path. Uh, what do you mean by vortex? Well, there's a lot of forces changing uh, in the society at that time. Really, you're still feeling the echoes of Watergate. Right, so the country's still kind of reeling over a crisis of the morality of a leader. Right, this is not a not a case of policy betrayal or corruption. Although Vietnam certainly contributed to the cynicism around government, but suddenly the country's faced with a liar having been president and having been thrown out. And so there's a feeling that personal morality matters more. This concept of character, which has been around presidential politics since you know the early 1970s, late 1960s, becomes much more important in this period. Uh, you have a new generation of journalists coming into the profession, just coming onto the campaign buses now, for whom this is a guiding issue. First of all, they want to make sure that doesn't happen again in a very pure, real sense, in an understandable way. They also, right, have seen the movie, All the President's Men. And that, that movie, even more than the book, more than the scandal, is a, you know, a cultural landmark. Because for people in my industry at that time, it's that, that's who you want to be. You want to be Woodward and Bernstein. That means taking someone down. That means exposing the lie, the fraudulence. That now has become the focal point of politics. Character is, is the issue. Uh, and then you have you know, changing attitudes about adultery on the left because the feminist movement made it much less tolerable than it had been before when it was kind of winked at. On the right, you have the rise of the moral majority and the culture warriors who brought about the so-called Reagan Revolution. All of these things are happening at the same time. And then you have the birth of the satellite dish. 
And that creates, that begins to really change the definition of news, because suddenly now TV can come from any place at any time. We no longer need to wire it up weeks in advance. Including Gary Hart's home in Colorado. Yes, and and that's because that's the first time you see this in a political scandal, and that's because now stories unfold like soap operas. Don't forget, and we do forget, in the months before this story, you had Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, which some people will remember, right? The the preacher accused of sexual wrongdoing and the wife with the mascara and the whatnot. And, and you know, she's the, that's the highest rated interview Ted Koppel's ever done to that point on Nightline, which in Nightline is a cultural, you know, icon as a show. That, that, that show is, you know, extraordinarily powerful in America at that time. So the whole idea of news is verging into entertainment. Uh, you know, it's becoming a much more entertainment-driven culture and a more entertainment-driven industry. Hart doesn't create this moment. He is uh, made for it in a way. He, he walks into it. If he doesn't walk into it, I guarantee you someone else does, Bill Clinton or someone else. But the, the interesting thing about Senator Hart in this context is uh, the irony for him, and I think one of the things that makes him such a compelling character, because this really is a, a character-driven narrative. You know, it's, it's, it's a story, and that's what gripped me. And everything you think you remember about it, by the way, is just wrong. The public perception of this story is just wrong in so many ways when you mention the picture and hopefully we'll talk about that because that's wrong but it comes later it comes later and it's not on a it's not on a boat it's actually on a crowded pier so all of this is different but the thing is that's fascinating about Hart is that he he sees around corners like no political figure of his day he's a real visionary and i'm going to tell you i've covered four presidential campaigns i've been doing this for 15 years you don't meet a lot of visionaries uh in politics or in anything else the man's a visionary. He can see he's talking in 1985, 1986 about stateless terrorism. He's talking about oil independence or going into war over oil. He's talking about the transition of the manufacturing economy to the silicon chip. You know, th- this is real. I mean, every, every notion we get of where the country is going and, and all the challenges we have not met, he's articulating. But he can't see around this one corner. He is blind to the cultural tilt toward entertainment and tabloidism in politics, is his young aides say to him, you know, look, they're coming for you, these new reporters. They care about your personal life in a way that the older guys didn't. And he, he, he can almost be made to believe that someone will care and write about it because he can hear the speculation and the rumors. But he cannot for the life of him imagine that someone will come searching out the evidence because everything in his public life to that point having been a campaign manager of a national campaign in 1972, having come to the Senate, having served on the Church Commission, having run for president and become the biggest political celebrity in the country for months in 1984, everything in his experience to that point tells him that this is not the thing that reporters write about, and he's wrong. Let's take a break from my conversation with Yahoo News national political columnist Matt Bai. We spoke at the Tattered Cover in 2014 about his book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. Recently, Bai revisited what he calls the collision of entertainment and political journalism in an election year column titled, Are We Getting the Leaders We Deserve? We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Matt Bai has written about politics for much of his career, and he says the rules for journalists and politicians changed in 1987, the year U.S. Senator Gary Hart of Colorado withdrew from the presidential race. In a recent Yahoo News column, Bai says that paved the way for this year's unusual race. We spoke back in 2014 when his book about Hart's alleged affair and ensuing political downfall was published. It's called All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. This is, I suppose, in contrast to an earlier president 
who we now know had something of an illustrious sexual history, JFK. That's one of them. That's yeah. one of them. <laughs> uh, the, the point being, it's not that there had, hadn't been sexual indiscretions in politics before, but they just hadn't been caught in this vortex. No, I mean, look, uh, Theodore White, the presidential historian, the preeminent presidential historian, wrote in his memoir that he knew of three presidents or candidates who he didn't think had, I think he called it, taken casual partners or some such thing on the road. And uh, if you're interested, I think it's Harry Truman, George Romney, and uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, those were yeah. the three. So you can go through the rest that you might imagine. <laughs> You're kidding me. Uh, you know, really? Right, you know, really? Richard Nixon, really? But the, but the you know, I, I don't know. I can't vouch for, for Teddy White. But, you know, look, we have, you go through Franklin Roosevelt, obviously uh, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson. Private morality in this way simply does not factor into public integrity. And by the way, I'm not saying the old days were, you know, the, the good old days weren't always good as the long as, I mean, were there things John Kennedy was doing that journalists, among them Ben Bradley, who plays a role in, in this story about Gary Hart, should they have written about some of this stuff? A mobster's girlfriend and a liaison with the president? I think so. I mean, these are not easy issues. I'm not suggesting they are. But uh, until 1987, Unless something breaks into the public view and becomes a political issue, like Nelson Rockefeller's divorce or Chappaquiddick, it is not generally covered. And when it is covered, it's really not disqualifying. It doesn't, it doesn't become the totality of your character overnight. Ted Kennedy comes back from Chappaquiddick and, and runs for president and is lionized at his death. Right? Nelson Rockefeller, after divorcing his wife, marrying a much younger congressional staffer, scandalized, can't get the Republican nomination for president, probably because of it, ends up vice president of the United States. So it's not a thing that defines you as insufficiently moral to serve. And then you have this moment in 1987 where Gary Hart is simply overtaken by this. It, there's no context anymore. What the satellite dish with these other trends I'm talking about, what the, the, the post-Watergate fervor, what all of it does really is rob us of context. You know, and, and uh, Rick Hertzberg, the writer, later for The New Yorker, but at, this time with the, at the, that time with The New Republic, writes this incredibly prescient piece, I think, during this week in 1987, really the only one. And he says to his colleagues in the media, surely if Gary Hart is a liar... There's a public record of his dishonesty. Let someone produce it, right? Effectively, what he's saying is, as I would describe it, is, you know, does a guy take bribes? Does he duck votes? Does he lie to his constituents? All of this is character, too. And that context is completely washed away. All that matters is this moment. And that, you know, that was new in America then. And, of course, we know it's not new now. Let me read more from the Hertzberg quote in your book. Uh, because it's, it's really stunning. He writes, Senator Hart has been politically stoned to death for adultery. The difference is that in Iran, the mullahs do not insult the condemned prisoner by telling him that he is being executed not for adultery, but because of concerns about his character, questions about his judgment, or doubts about his candor. You know, I, I think that what, what we really did in that moment uh, was to rush toward these kinds of stories, to this story and ones after, for very understandable reasons, because it was a competitive environment, because suddenly we could, because people cared about them, because we were concerned about the character of leaders, because we didn't want another liar in the White House, for all of these reasons. 
in the moment without really thinking through the consequences or the change that we were creating, and then erecting after the fact a whole bunch of rationales that I grew up with in journalism. It's not the sex, it's the lie, right? It's the hypocrisy. If he'll lie to his wife, he'll lie to the country. These things really don't hold water. I mean, we have a long historical record from which I can tell you with uh, reasonable confidence that if someone will lie to their wife, they will not necessarily lie about policy and government. Will you read an excerpt from the book yes. to this effect, yes, actually? Of course. American history is rife with examples of people who are crappy husbands or shady dealers, but great stewards of the state. Just as we've had thoroughly decent men who couldn't summon the executive skills to run a bake sale. I think it's pretty clear from what you've told us that you land on one side of the question of character uh, as as a euphemism, in a way, for the private life of a candidate, you don't see that it's really all that impactful in terms of their ability to lead a nation or a state. Well, I, I, I don't feel that way, actually. I don't think that's where I land, uh, because I really wrestle with this, and I wrestle with it in the book. I mean, I'll give you an example uh, where I'd come down on the other side, and you know, poor John Edwards, because I keep um, going back to him as my favorite example. But, you know, look, I knew John Edwards, and I covered him. And in, and in 2007, when I was at the New York Times Magazine, where I was for over a decade, I wrote 8,000 words on John Edwards' anti-poverty platform. And I spent time with him in the, in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans and all over the country. And uh, I was pretty proud of myself, because I thought that was a very serious story. And what, what, I, what I kind of decided in looking at the anti-poverty platform was that a lot of it was basically thrown together, a rehash of proposals been around since the 1960s. There were only a few nods in his agenda to sort of the, the, think, the newest thinking and research on poverty and cyclical poverty in particular. And one of those was the Responsible Fatherhood Initiative that he felt you had to take, fathers had to take responsibility for their children. We had allowed this cultural decline in, in the cities. And then it turned out that he was not acknowledging a child of his own, a wealthy man you know, whose, whose child was, was in hiding and someone was pretending it was, it was their kid. I would have a hard time concluding that the National Enquirer's work was less relevant to John Edwards as a candidate than mine was. That is rank hypocrisy. How do you get around that? I can't get around that. I think there are instances where not only does character matter, I think there are instances where private behavior matters more than anything else. But one needs to bring context to that issue and judgment. And those are the two things I come back to over and over. Context in that truthful people tell lies, moral people do immoral things. None of us, as Bob Carey said to me, the former senator said to me once, we are not the worst things we've ever done in our lives. And there's a tendency to think that we are. None of us in this room, who in this room, raise your hand if you want to be judged by the worst moment of your life. And so, you know, we need to bring context. What is in the accumulated public record, and judgment. In doing this story, uh, in, in retracing these steps, I've come around to the point of view that we all have choices to make and judgment to exercise. And mm-hmm. it's, time, it's time we did. Uh, tell us about some of the key decisions by prominent political reporters, some still working today, that made this a story. Early on, there's a stakeout of Senator Hart's home in Washington, D.C. Right. Later... In New Hampshire, a Washington Post reporter asks him, point blank, have you ever committed adultery? And in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal with President Clinton, that may seem somewhat innocuous, but for that time, that was highly unusual. It was unprecedented. 
And you're right, it seems quaint. Now, those are two, obviously, big decision points. And I want to be really clear that uh, we're talking about some outstanding reporters of that time. And so I don't say in the book, and I I won't say here, that I wouldn't have made the same decisions, right? This isn't, uh, in the moment, I think any of us could have made those decisions. It's fine to go back and look at it 27 years later. Uh, And I think it's complicated. But you know, let's look at the Miami Herald for the first. So, so this is really where the story breaks. It is, and, and here and here's the thing about it, right? Everybody believes this version of events as follows. Gary Hart said to a bunch of reporters, "If you want to keep asking about my personal life, follow me around. I don't care. You'd be bored. Put a tail on me." And then, inexplicably, he goes and he entertains this woman in his in his townhouse in in Washington. He is under surveillance because he has challenged reporters to do this. The Miami Herald puts him under surveillance. He's caught, and this is, this is significant. Because of that, right, the rules change. So Gary Hart has now invited us into his bedroom. We've come to his bedroom. He's not only self-destructive, but he's changed all the standards from thereafter, and he really gets pegged with that. Well, it's just not true. The truth of the matter is that Senator Hart said to one room, and by the way, it's never been true. In other words, nobody ever said otherwise. We just misremember it. The truth is... Gary Hart said to one reporter at the New York Times Magazine, E.J. Dion, in an interview where he knew this would come up, he got frustrated and he said, go ahead, fine. You know what, E.J., follow me around. Put a tail on me, you'd be bored. E.J. Dion did not think of it as a challenge. Hart did not mean it as a challenge. E.J. Dion thought Hart was basically saying, look, whatever I've done in the past, and he'd been twice separated from his wife, so a lot of what he'd done was in full view of Washington. He basically said, you know, look, whatever's going on, it's, it's done and I, I don't bother looking at it. The Miami Herald then gets, just coincidentally, an anonymous tip from a woman who I find, who, I, who I've gone back and found, and as these things often turn in history, it's a woman who was just really kind of jealous of her friend Donna Rice and angry at her and was sick of hearing about this senator she'd met and decided to dime her out. That's how history turns, folks. Hmm. So it's not some grand conspiracy. It's the, you got to watch your friends. You're, you're the first to get the admission that she was... I am. I am. I mean, it's easier 27 years later. But yeah, <laughs> I, I am the... I mean, everyone assumed it was someone else, and it wasn't. So the Herald gets this tip. They set about trying to confirm that this woman is going to Washington. It takes about three or four days, and then they decide, yes, in fact, she is. And they go, and they send a team uh, in two shifts to put hard under surveillance. They end up sending four reporters and a photographer... This woman being Donna Rice. But Donna Rice, right, is the woman involved. They, they stake out Hart's townhouse behind the bushes. They're wearing disguises. One's in like a parka. It's May. Uh, another, another guy, Tom Fiedler's in jogging clothes, and he's kind of pretending to jog. But, you know, he, Hart would know him, so he's kind of like jogging in the other direction, back and forth. Uh, this is not a busy street, by the way, in Capitol Hill. So this stands out. But what happens is, you know, they, they confront hard. They, they catch him. No one's ever done anything like this. I mean, no one, I, even now, this would be unheard of to, to do this kind of surveillance. They catch him, and there's this moment, this bizarre moment, forgotten, where the, the Hillary Clinton of his day, right, the presumed nominee of the Democratic Party, 20 points ahead of the nearest Democratic challengers who aren't even running, double digits ahead of George H.W. Bush and head-to-head polls. He's pinned against a brick wall in an alley next to his townhouse by four reporters. He's wearing a white hoodie. It's late at night, and they're shouting at him, He's led them on this bizarre chase by foot, by car. And, and they're shouting at him, who's the woman in your house? And did you have sex with her? And who is she? And how long have you known her? Nothing like this has ever happened. But what they do is when they write the story the next day, it so happens that E.J. Dion's story is also coming out that day. And there's been an advanced copy sent to the Herald, as there was to all the press. And the Herald, Tom Fiedler, the lead reporter for the Herald, has read this on the plane to Washington. 
So they take the quote from the Dion story, which hasn't run yet. Which is, follow me, you'll be bored. Follow me, you'll be bored. They paraphrase, they put it at the end of their story. And forever after, the public believes that the challenge came before the surveillance. It's just not true. The surveillance came before anybody knew about the challenge. And this is really important because who, who rewrote the rules? We did. And as an industry... The Miami Herald did. We did. And as an industry, we never had to answer for it or discuss it because the assumption was we were only doing what we were challenged to do. It's just not true. Now, if you'll let me go on on the second point. Yeah. All right, because now I'm just... I'm, I'm engrossed. Now I'm just riffing. Yeah. <laughs> you still have to read the book, by the way. I'm not giving you the whole thing. Uh, you know, Paul Taylor, who was uh, a up-and-coming rising star for the Washington Post, a very big deal reporter, you know, his paper at the Post thanks to the active participation of Ben Bradley, the hero of Watergate, uh, uncovers what they believe to be evidence of another affair. Because, you know, nobody wants to get beat. Now the story's moving fast, and they've got the next thing. And they decide they need to confront him about it. Now, you know, mind you, because I think this is important to understand in the context, if you're a political reporter and a good political reporter, to write a story that someone's had an affair, that's kind of tantalizing. You might not love what you see when you look in the mirror the next day, right? But if he's denied ever having an affair, and then you prove he's had an affair, that's a story about hypocrisy. This is where we go back to, right, if he'll lie to you, he'll lie to anyone. So, or if he'll lie to his wife, he'll lie to anyone. Which so, is also a leap, as you say. Yeah. yeah. So, so Taylor goes to this news conference in New Hampshire uh, with this in mind, and he, uh, he gets Hart's attention. They know each other. They've known each other for a while. A, you have to picture the scene here. This is a... It's a sweat-soaked room. Politics is not used to this. The tabloid press has arrived. It's a whole new thing. You've had photographers hurling themselves at windows and leaping over bushes. It's like 100 degrees in this room near the Dartmouth campus. There's no such thing as crowd control in politics. So there's literally a guy on all fours, an aide, trying to keep the press at two feet away from Hart. But he's doing really well. He's handling all the questions. He's kind of dazzling people. He's very sharp. And then Taylor gets his attention, and Taylor says... Senator, I'd like to lead you through a bunch of questions. And he says, okay. And he says, do you, do you consider yourself a moral person? You said you were going to be a moral leader. Senator Hart says, yes. He says, you, do you think adultery is immoral? And Senator Hart says, I suppose it is. And he says, Senator, and he's, he's speaking almost in a whisper, in a raspy voice. He's very, it's a very tense moment. He says, Senator, have you ever committed adultery? And the people who were in that room, and I met one of them just the other night at a reading I did, they remember, everyone remembers it still. It was, a, it was just a moment that made everybody gasp and the people listening to it. The aides in the room were shocked. No, no one had really imagined that question coming. And they, they certainly, they had talked about it in the campaign that it could go to that length, but they had not imagined a paper like the Washington Post asking that question. And as you say, you know, later it would come to be pretty old hat, right? Uh, what if your wife were raped, governor, or, you know... You know the, the question to Michael Dukakis. Or, yeah. Right, or, or, or to, uh, to Governor Clinton when he was running for president, you know, have, have you talk about trouble in your marriage. He's on 60 Minutes talking about it. I mean, this, is, uh, this was unheard of at that time, and, and, and it was a crucial decision. It did... Every, every one of these decisions has a cascading effect in the business and in the affairs of the country and, and in the life of this man, which is part of the story I find very compelling. We are listening back to my 2014 conversation with political columnist Matt Bai of Yahoo News. We talked about his book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. Bai revisited the topic of the collision between entertainment and politics in a recent column. Coming up, more on what he thinks is Hart's prophecy for future elections. This is Colorado Matters. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with political columnist Matt Bai. We spoke at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in 2014 about his book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. It examines the downfall of presidential candidate and former U.S. Senator from Colorado, Gary Hart. In 1987, Hart's White House hopes were dashed because of an alleged affair. Bai says it was a pivotal moment for politics and journalism. More recently, in a Yahoo News column, he wrote that Hart's, quote, sounded the alarm on how the media's growing interest in politicians' personal lives would affect who runs for office. Let's have you read another excerpt from the book. So shortly after that encounter, which was in New Hampshire, is that right? Yes. Yeah. He flies home to Colorado. Senator Hart does, that is. Uh, And uh, I'll have you pick up the story from there. Hart read Tolstoy's Resurrection on the plane, which had to be rerouted away from Stapleton Airport in Denver because of all the media camped out there, and which ended up landing at a smaller airport that was besieged by yet more media. Hart wasn't sure what to expect when they landed, but the NBC helicopter that hovered above his car as he raced through Bear Creek Canyon, pursued by cameramen, pretty much answered the question. He could barely get through the front gate at Troublesome Gulch with all the lenses swarming around the car and banging up against the windows like giant predatory insects that literally rocked the car. When he and Lee were back in the cabin, an empathetic photographer slipped a note under the door. It said the cameraman had telephoto lenses and could see through the windows into the kitchen. They were surreptitiously shooting the family. So the hearts pinned sheets and blankets over the windows and sat by themselves in the dark. And that account comes from one of your interviews with Senator Hart. Is that right? It does, yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, it's an intense time, and unimaginably so, again, in that era. Yeah, and you have to remember there was no such thing. I mean, this is, you know, the modern industry, which, and it really is, there is an industry built around crisis, this kind of crisis and scandal management. It didn't exist at that time. So well, Now you'd get Olivia Pope from the TV show Scandal, to come into Colorado and rescue him, right? There's a whole business around rescuing people. In- I mean, Washington, you can't go 50 feet in Washington without running into somebody's firm that, that would be called upon to manage this crisis. Right. But as it was, that didn't exist. So, you know, Lee Hart is in the cabin in Colorado, here, you know, here uh, at Troublesome Gulch in Kittredge, and she's, she can't get out. Because the press is just mobbed around the gate. This is prior to Hart's withdrawal. So they send Joe Trippi, who later becomes a pretty famous Democratic consultant. He's in his 20s. They send Joe Trippi up there and they say, Joe, get her out of there. Do something. He arrives and he sees this line of satellite trucks going down the gravel. I've never seen anything like this before. A line. These are brand new. They didn't exist a few year, two years before. And Trippi says to himself, uh, this is a, it's a family station. I don't want to swear. But he says to himself, Holy crap, they move now. Because he, he can't imagine that the entire media has come to the gate. And one of the first people who puts a microphone in his face, this guy puts a microphone, he says, I'm from a current affair. Is, this, is, the, senator, is the senator's wife inside? And, and Joe thinks to himself, current affair? He looks at the guy, he says, you have a show for that now? Because he can't, he, he can't imagine, you know, he doesn't have no idea what they're talking about. The show's brand new. It's just launched that year with Maury Povich. And so they end up, he ends up getting her after, after a couple of days of being besieged, he ends up getting the candidate's wife out of the cabin by hiding her on the floorboards of the car under his infant daughter's car seat and with blankets over and they just kind of roll through the press. I mean, today this kind of thing would be unheard of. The first thing you would do is establish perimeter, bring in security. 
And they did bring some security eventually, but, but you know, just the tabloid press to this moment had not covered politics, and they had not covered politicians like celebrities. And, you know, this is the moment when the tabloid press makes its incursion into politics, and the political press says, well, this is our story, not yours. And they begin to behave in kind. And what had been a pretty genteel part of the business, of media, you know, becomes a, a blood sport. To go back to what we heard Senator Hart say in his speech withdrawing from the race, we really have to think about what we put our candidates through and, and the quality of candidates that will then emerge as a result. I want to ask you, do you think that this event changed the quality of candidates that we get running for office? Sure. You know, let's talk about that speech for a second. He gets, his staff writes him a withdrawal speech. This is the one you heard earlier. And it's contrite. It's sort of the modern idea of what you would think of as a concession speech when you want to salvage your reputation and go on and he he actually talks to Warren Beatty late at night, which you probably shouldn't do when making key decisions. <laughs> and uh, and and he says, you know, what he said to me was it ma- it made him want to vomit. He could not give that speech. He was too angry, and he tore it up. And he comes out and he gives this very defiant speech, which you heard. And what you didn't, he says, you know, we'll become the hunters and the hunted in this country. He says, mark my words, politics will become a spectator sport in this country. And he ends by saying. By paraphrasing Jefferson, he says, I tremble for my country when I think we'll get the leaders we deserve. And he is roundly mocked and ridiculed immediately by the editorial page of the New York Times, by everybody else who says he should have been contrite, he's not taking responsibility, it's everybody else's fault but his. But, you know, as, as I think about it, 27 years on, I don't think the idea of getting the leaders we deserve is very funny to most Americans. And I think we have uh, driven out a lot of good people from our politics. I think we've kept out an awful lot. We'll never know how many talented, creative people who simply won't subject themselves or their families to an unendurable process. And more than that, and I think very important, we have made it very easy for a lot of people who have no business holding public office to float through the process. Because when you don't focus anymore on worldviews and agendas and ideas, when you're only focusing on these issues of character and morality, it becomes possible for people who know very little to get through the process without telling you anything about what they believe or what they plan to do. And, uh, and I do think it changes the caliber of people. I think what we draw to the process of presidential politics and all national-level politics, oftentimes, though not exclusively, are people who will subject themselves and their families to any level of scrutiny, to any level of invasiveness, who will say and do whatever they must, who will obfuscate in whatever way they need to run the traps because they have to have the office and they have to have the power. And that is not what we considered political leadership prior to 1987, but I think it's very close approximation of what we regard as political leadership today. I don't want to ask a prurient question, but I want to ask about a prurient question. That sounds uh, like a journalist right there. <laughs> <laughs> it was unclear at the time if Senator Hart ever actually slept with Donna Rice. Both parties deny it. Did that matter to you nearly 30 years later? That's an interesting way to ask it. Uh, you know, obviously this gets a little bit to the end of the book, and I, I don't want to give away the ending. Uh, I will tell you, he does not become president. <laughs> uh, so, so, spoil, spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. Yeah. Um, uh, did I care? You know, I did care only to the extent that I thought, wow, if all of this happened over 
something that was assumed but actually didn't happen, then that would be like a, a sort of bizarre historical irony and injustice and interesting. Uh, and so the thing I really wrestled with in, in reporting the book, talking to Senator Hart, talking to Donna Rice, uh, talking to other aides was how much did I want to know? How much did I have an obligation to ask? In some ways, I went through the same process that maybe some of the reporters should have gone through. Hmm. And maybe some did back in 1987 about what people needed to know and what they didn't and what I had a right to know. And uh, I wrestled with it really in the final pages of the book. And I think I'll leave it there. Political columnist Matt Bai speaking with us at the Tattered Cover in 2014 about his book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid. Bai revisited the topic in a March Yahoo News column. Coming up, when does a candidate's personal life matter? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's wrap up my conversation with Yahoo News national political columnist Matt Bai. In this presidential election year, we're re-airing a 2014 interview at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. He spoke about his book, All the Truth is Out, The Week Politics Went Tabloid, and we took audience questions. My name is Larry Boning. I'm from Denver. Hello, Larry. I would be interested in your comments on what is the importance of national security in what citizens are entitled to know about sitting presidents and people running for presidents? JFK was president during the height of the Cold War. And from what I've read, JFK had more affairs before he was president and while he was president than probably any other president in American history. You know, I, 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 you raise a great point, Larry. I, I tell you, I didn't obviously cover Kennedy because I wasn't alive, uh, but... <laughs> Um, I was at Newsweek uh, during the Lewinsky scandal, which Newsweek really investigated first and broke, and I was uh, privy to some of the late conversations, uh, tormented conversations about whether or not to publish that story. And I will tell you what I thought about at the time, and I think about it still, to the heart of your question, is there were a lot of people who said, well, so the president does what the president needs to do. Like, So the president has an affair in the Oval Office with a with an intern, like, how's it affecting the country, right? He's lying about something, but he's lying about nothing, so who cares? Well, maybe, uh, to all appearances, she's just a a random intern, Uh, but what if she's not? What if she's on the payroll of a tobacco company? What if she's uh, a foreign operative? You know, does anyone think that there is any agenda item that the president would not have dropped rather than have that story come out and ruin his entire presidency and, and, and quite possibly drive him from office, that is a national security issue. And I think it was news. I think also the fact that there was perjury and, invest- and, a, and a criminal investigation made it news. I, th- I thought it was very difficult at the time. I think these are very complex choices. And part of the judgment around the private lives of presidents and presidential candidates is, does it endanger the public good? I don't think the fact that you've lied to your wife endangers the public good because if you're capable of lying to your wife, you're capable of lying to everyone else. There's no one in this room who's not incapable of lying and who hasn't lied, probably in the last 20 hours. But, <laughs> but I, I do think uh, there are decisions that a politician can make in office that endanger, be it foreign policy or domestic policy, the affairs of the country, and I think that makes it news. 
My name is Phil Corsello, and I'm from Denver. And my question is this, that in what must have been very lengthy conversations with Senator Hart, did the question of whether he might have weathered that storm ever come up? It did, Phil. It, yeah. And might it also have been suggested that that he caved too quickly. Oh, yes. yes. And that that's, that might have been an indication of a lack of toughness that we would like to have in our in our presidents. Yeah, he, he, he has heard that over the years. We did talk about it. Uh, and, and let me just say, he, I didn't know this historical fact, Phil. He got back in the race briefly right. again and then withdrew again. It was ill-fated, but uh, just was, for some historical context. extremely ill-fated. He is aware of that criticism, and, and he told me that for years afterward, uh, he would be stopped in airports or, or public places, and people would say, you should have stayed in, you should have stayed in. And some people were actually angry. Some people said that he created, you know, that, that part of what he created was a standard by which politicians had to leave, and therefore the scandals kept coming. The press would keep looking for scandals. Look, w- what he would tell you, I wasn't there. What What he would tell you is that, it is hard to imagine what he and his family were going through in a week where no one had gone through something like that before, that the there was no crowd control, there was no media strategy, there was no way to get around the filter. It was unrelenting. I think without having been in that position to assume that it was uh, endurable uh, would be wrong. And I also, uh, what people close to him have told me compellingly, you know, I think very persuasively, is that he was deeply concerned about a lot of the women he had known over the years. You know, he'd been separated from his wife. He had dated. He had been in Washington a long time. And there were a lot of women starting to get calls and knocks on their doors, and at least one of whom told him that she would kill herself if her name were published. And uh, one of the things he said to his aides the night before he got out was that he, he did not want to put people through that. And I don't discount that either. I think that was real. I'm Sean McNamara from Denver, hey, Sean. and I'm I'm 40 years old, and I think for as long as I've cared about news online or on TV, I've had to regard it as entertainment and not as news, and that's my attitude today toward, in a general way. And if you could step into that view, do you foresee a time when someone like myself would once again see the news as news and no longer as entertainment that appeals purely to my adrenaline rush? Can the cat go back in the bag in a yeah. way? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny, Sean. Yeah, I was thinking about this because I did John Stewart the other night. I went on The Daily Show. And um, you can find the clip on Google. And, um, and uh, you know... That might was, be your answer right there, but, actually. Uh, but, you know, he... Yeah, right. But, but this is the irony. This is the funny thing, right? So you go on The Daily Show and you think, well... You know, this is the entertainment piece. This is this is guys using news to create comedy. I mean, John Stewart will say he's not a news guy; he's an entertainment guy. And yet, it's less like entertainment than the TV news because he's actually listening. He does a great interview. He doesn't come in with a list of questions that have been written out for him that he just reads and goes away. You know, you talk to most TV TV anchors, you could say, you know, the answer to the first question is, well, you know. Actually, I just killed my parents before I came here. I locked them in a closet. Fantastic. And after, when you wrote the book, you know, they're not <laughs> listening to you at all. You know, they're shuffling papers. And, um, and, and you know, there's, there's all this artifice in, in, in news. Um, and Jon Stewart, there's no artifice. That's why people like it. That's why people respond to it. Because it's not pretending to be anything other than what it is. And he's actually paying attention. Um, and it made me reflect on this question that you raised about what is entertainment and what is news. Because I'm starting to think that I had them reversed. Um, 
I don't think news is going back to what it was entirely, and I don't think it should because that wasn't great either. There's an awful lot of boring news in the old days, I think. You know, the wire story that you got every day was, you know, it, there was no analysis to it. And honestly, this we live in a much more complicated world where media literacy analysis are very important. You know, you can't just... You don't want to read stories that are just about the talking points the guy gave you yesterday, you know, because that wouldn't be illuminating. Uh, but but what makes me optimistic isn't just that we have a new generation coming, because generations change the ethos of everything. And, and, you know, people your age and younger coming into the business now want to change this. But also that we have such varied avenues of news now. I mean, I think we're always going to have that entertainment piece. If you want to watch Fox, you'll know, be my guest. But at the same time, we have all these new websites and reinvigorated newspapers online, I hope. And so I think in that wide variety of choices that you will have, you will have the ability to surround yourself with more serious news sources than you probably ever could before. And there's an awful lot of good journalism out there. So I'm optimistic, but I'm always optimistic. I'm Mike McPhee. I'm a retired Associated Press reporter and retired from the Denver Post. When Paul Taylor confronted Senator Hart at Dartmouth, and asked him if he'd ever committed adultery. What was the answer? It's an excellent question. Let me paint the scene a bit before I answer you directly. Hart gets asked this question, have you ever committed adultery? And two things go through his mind. The first thing he thinks, he's looking at it, all these reporters who he's known, who were on his campaign plane in 1984, he knows who they have slept with. He knows who's had adulterous affairs. So the first thing he's thinking to himself is, you've got to be kidding me. Right? They're, all, they're all, you know, just demanding. They're all just looking so sanctimonious. And he knows they've cheated on their spouses. I mean, that happened when I started covering campaigns, and I think it was much worse, you know, in those days. And then the second thing that goes to his mind is what is, you know, he, he went to Bible college. He's a, he's a true theologian. He went to divinity school after that. And he's thinking, what is, what is adultery? Well, he actually starts to think about the biblical definition of adultery. And how do you answer a question like that? And what he says is, I don't think that's a fair question. Um, now, interestingly, he had practiced this with Kevin Sweeney, his press secretary, on the plane to New Hampshire. And Sweeney says to him, you could get asked this. And Hart says, well, that's nobody's business, and I'm not answering that. And Sweeney says, that's exactly the answer. But in the moment, the indignation sort of flees from him. He's bewildered, and he's, and he's got all these things going on in his mind. There's a long pause. He says, I don't think that's a fair question. And then Taylor goes on to question him more. Well, you know, do, do you and your wife have an open or non-traditional marriage? Because now he's on a roll. And Hart says, you know, I don't, my inclination is to say I shouldn't have to answer that question. And then he pauses and he says, um, but no, we have a very traditional loving marriage or something to that effect. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very poignant scene because every politician from then on knows that, has the impulse that the answer to that question is none of your damn business. It's just not a tenable answer. And it's essentially the answer Hart gives then, and it's essentially the answer he gives for 27 years and gives me. Uh, uh, you know, if I, if I ask him uh, details of his private life. And, you know, I, I, would, I, I want to end this way if you'll indulge me for a minute. It's a bit of a segue from your question, but here's the question I would pose to you and I would ask you to think about, and I think it's the question posed by the book, which is how are we going to define character? Is character the guy who gives up whatever career he could have had, who gives up his lifelong yearning for public service because he's not going to subject his family to that, because he's not going to do the Oprah interview, because he's not going to hire an image consultant to put him on tour, and because for 27 years he's going to say it's none of your damn business? Or is character the guy who will 
lie to your face, say and do anything. Bring his wife on TV, parade his family in front of the cameras, whatever it takes to reassure voters that he's just like them and understands their point of view. And, uh, you know, for a long, long time in American life before this moment, I think uh, the, the determination to stand by one's convictions, no matter the cost, was considered a hallmark of leadership. And what we call it today is insufficient character. And I think it's a question worth considering. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Matt Bai of Yahoo News. The presidential race inspired us to revisit that 2014 conversation. His book is called All the Truth is Out. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.